action. Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. He's a big movies think about big men in tights. You should have got us. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f are the Knutsons? We like movies. Hello, everybody. Welcome to We Like Movies, a semi-monthly movie-positive pop culture cross-section where we cover everything from deep-dive historical retrospectives to contemporary cinematic concerns, as well as everything in between. For the second time in a month, I will be your host, and when I say I, I mean myself, Matt Knutson. My old friend Oscar Dahl reached out to me this week and told me that between his recent move back to Washington State from Idaho, as well as he and his fiance's commitment to participating in the protests in Seattle all this week, he just couldn't see a time when he could guarantee his availability for a podcast. I obviously respect the man's activism. I think it's admirable and wish him the best out there in the streets. I just hope he's being careful. So in the meantime, I'm extremely excited to introduce today's guest who will be joining me to talk about Robert Altman's Nashville on the occasion of the film's 45th anniversary, which lines up beautifully with the next installment of our AFI Top 100 Countdown, number 59. Joining me today is a friend and colleague, a man who the WLM community has been requesting, nay clamoring for a return guest spot on the podcast since his insightful contributions to our In the Heat of the Night, as well as our Top 10s of the 2010s podcast. Coming to us from Dallas, Texas, Mr. Ben Goff. Ben, how are you today? I am doing well. How are you, Matt? Excellent. I was just thinking this week at the risk of, of making you blush how one of my favorite things from our time at Columbia University, where we met, getting to be in class and getting to watch you when you would talk about a particular subject matter that you got super excited about. Again, don't mean to make you blush, but your face would just light up with this huge smile when I could tell you were getting so excited about whatever the subject was, Leas Carax or Sidney Poitier. Finding your enthusiasm so infectious, enjoying getting to know you and enjoying becoming colleagues and becoming friends with you. And I just want you to know how, how inspirational I find your dedication into this particular subject matter. Well, the feeling is mutual, Matt. I, you and I were the two who fought hard for American cinema in those courses. <laughs> and it was nice to always know that I had somebody in my corner <laughs> and know that I had somebody I could support as well. You know, you were writing about James Bond and, and narrative theory of you know Soderbergh films. And it was always great to, to know that there was somebody who respected and appreciated just good American cinema. Well, it seems appropriate uh, that you and I, as, as uh, respecters and flag wavers uh, for American cinema that we would be talking about a seminal American masterpiece. I don't think we ever necessarily talked explicitly about Altman during our time at Columbia. I don't think it ever came up in any curriculum. I don't remember it ever coming up in any of the classes that I took, uh, yeah. American cinema, film history or otherwise. But it's an important movie and it's a movie that just matures. It gets better every single time I watch it. It's really a film that I finally sort of feel somewhat up to the task of analyzing. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm finally getting to a point in my life where I can sort of understand the impact of this movie. Like, I probably watched it five times over the course of the last 25 years of my life. The first time I watched it, junior high school, you know, Altman came onto my radar because of MASH, because MASH made it onto the first AFI list. Nashville was not on the first AFI list, by the way. It's number 59 on the second list, which is the one we're covering. So MASH came on my radar because of the first AFI list, and as a result, Altman came on my radar, and I started going down the Altman rabbit hole. And What's your history with this film and with Altman by extension? In terms of Altman, he is somebody who, when I think about those directors, 
directors of the new American cinema. He usually is forgotten in the lists. Um, you know, he's always like, if you list five directors, he's always going to be the sixth. Having rewatched Nashville for this podcast, I was just blown away by how different his filmmaking style is, which we'll get into, obviously. I was really appreciative of how familiar it felt with 1970s filmmaking, and yet how different and how he did put his stamp on it. I've seen MASH. I wasn't a huge fan of it, though I might need the Matt Knudsen treatment and just go back and rewatch it. I saw Nashville a few years ago at the IFC Center in New York City because they do this series where they bring in filmmakers to show movies that influenced them. And so Steve James, director of Hoop, Jane, uh, Hoop Dreams, came in and talked about Nashville. And I got really excited because uh, I'm a big fan of Hoop Dreams. So they, they screen the film and afterwards he comes up and does a Q&A. First thing out of his mouth, they asked him like, why'd you pick this movie? He goes, you know, I'm actually not that big of a fan of movies. So when I got asked to do this, this was kind of the first thing I thought of. And uh, yeah, I don't really remember anything about it. And like the entire Q&A was just him talking about how he didn't remember the movie. He actually didn't stay to watch the movie. Huh. It was an interesting experience because you watch Nashville and you see a lot of similarities between Hoop Dreams and Nashville. Different storylines interweaving, and no one's really a main character. That, that always left a weird, sour taste in my mouth for this movie. But then as I sort of sifted through my feelings for it, I was reminded how much I loved it. Um, and then obviously on my rewatch, I've really enjoyed it. I was revisiting some of the Criterion Collection materials for this film because it's, it's on the Criterion Collection, although unfortunately not on the Criterion channel at the moment. The, an interview with Steve James was one of the bonus features. And so I watched his little five minute blurb about it. And yeah. uh, he was a little more, he was a little more on point and insightful there than I've, than it sounds like he was in person. It sounds like he was scrambling a little bit. Yeah. It had to have been an off night for him because <laughs> he was, he was so blase and indifferent about the whole experience. And people would ask questions from the audience and he'd be like, yeah, I don't know. I don't remember that part. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's significant to have somebody who is associated with documentary filmmaking talk about a film that is structurally, I guess, narrative it is at least attempting to be such a boots on the ground reflection of right. people and place right and so he, he talked about hoop dreams obviously and how hoop dreams was influenced by nashville but he also talked about a film called the interrupters are you familiar mm. with that film I, i've never seen it mm -mm. It's, a, it's another chicago-based film about former gang members coming back to a specific south chicago community and attempting to sort of atone for their criminal activity by right. becoming more, you know, more fruitful members of the community. So I, I think his point, and probably the reason that he was invited to this particular screening you're talking about, is because Nashville is so explicitly interested in quote unquote authentic members of a very specific kind of community, right? Right. And it's a part of the world that I'm not, it's a part of this country that I'm not familiar with. I haven't spent much time in the South. I haven't even spent much time in the Midwest, I'm embarrassed to say. You were born and raised in the state of Texas and, and you've obviously spent time around that part of the country. Have you spent much time in Tennessee? I know you're going there relatively soon for a wedding. Not too much, but I, I know that a lot of people, I, I knew a lot of people from Dallas-Fort Worth area after high school went to Nashville. Nashville feels like a next step from Dallas-Fort Worth or sort of like a sister city of sorts, this urban center that's also trying to maintain its southern roots, the juxtaposition and sort of the tug of war that happens between those two worlds. So watching Nashville and, and especially watching just people in the entertainment industry within a southern community really resonated with sort of my upbringing in a different way. You know, Nashville is more music than commerce and Dallas is more commerce than music. But just watching a city try to balance all of its characters because it does have a plethora of spaces for them to operate. 
that was a really interesting thing to watch in Nashville. And because I was thinking like, oh, this feels a lot like they could have made this movie in Dallas. And even at the end, uh, not to spoil the ending. These these podcasts are intended for people who have seen the films, uh, Ben, so so go crazy. Barbara Jean, once she gets shot, you know, you have Hamilton come out, he says, this isn't Dallas, this is Nashville. Um, and even just him making the comparison between the two cities um, was really enlightening for me, or uh, confirming for me, at least. This is 1975, and the assassination of JFK was 63, so we're 12 years removed, but this is obviously wanting to comment directly on that, and then it's also sort of, in a way, presaging what would have been eventually happened to John Lennon, I think, three years later, something like that. I mean, five years, five, five years, years later, later. Oh, 80. OK, so when that happened, I know they they reached out to Altman for comment and said, do you feel um, do you feel responsible for this in any sort of way? And he said, no, I don't feel responsible, but I wish you guys I wish everyone would have heeded my warning. You know, right. he was he was egotistical enough to say that, like, Nashville was a warning that this this will continue to keep happening. So just to put a little bit of context on the film, I'm just going to quote directly from Wikipedia. The original screenplay for Nashville was written by Joan Tewksbury, who had collaborated with Altman on several of his films, including Gabe and Mrs. Miller, which she was the uh, script supervisor, Thieves Like Us, which she wrote, and she had proposed a Nashville set film to Altman prior to his filming of McCabe and Mrs. Miller. He became interested in the setting and sent Tewksbury to Nashville in the fall of 1973 to observe the area and its citizenry. Tewksbury's diary of her trip provided the basis for the screenplay with many observations making it into the finished film, such as the highway pileup. Uh, as with most Altman projects, much of the dialogue was improvised with the script acting as a quote unquote blueprint dictating the actions of the characters in the plot. What a great gig for Joan Tewksbury, right? <laughs> to right. be at a point in her career where Altman will say, here's some studio money, go live in Nashville for a month, take lots of notes, go out drinking, meet people, press the flesh, go location scouting, basically. What a great gig for a writer to just be able to immerse yourself in this environment that I presume is quite foreign to her and just yeah. build build the material that will eventually turn into a screenplay. That sounds like a dream come true to me. One of my favorite parts of American cinema history is the 1970s when studios just gave these <laughs> these filmmakers the credit card and said do whatever the hell you want to do with it because <laughs> they you know for the 10 years they did have the magic what a, what a time is there i feel i mean i should i should know this obviously i'm embarrassed i don't but i'm sure you do what are the exact years that constitute quote unquote new american cinema are we talking 67 to 79 are we talking 66 to 79 are we just talking about the 70s because 67 is obviously that red letter year that you and i have talked about before the way that i heard it in terms of just a very conversational way would be 67 to 80 with sort of Bonnie and Clyde and the Graduate to Heaven's Gate, where Heaven's Gate sort of crashes the system and it goes back to being a studio driven Hollywood. I would venture to say, though, that it's more those two years in between 67 and 69 were such a transitional year. I've heard people actually group those with the early 60s and call that the Hollywood Renaissance that then ushers in from 70 to 80 the new American cinema. Gotcha. I feel like it's the same way of talking about uh, different generational divides of like, who's a millennial and who's Gen X. You know, there's always going to be those little fuzzy fuzziness, the gap years. I, I would, <laughs> in terms of conversation, I would probably say 67 to 80. The time you get Bonnie and Clyde until Heaven's Gate. I think that those, that's the new American cinema. That's really helpful for my little um, contextual table setting here. Just in terms of where Altman was in his career when he uh, made Nashville. Between 1951 and 1967, appropriately, Altman uh, exclusively directs short subjects and episodic television. And when I say episodic television, I'm talking about 
hundreds of episodes of episodic television. If you look at his IMDb, it's crazy how many TV shows he worked on and how many episodes of each individual show he directed for that 17, 16-ish year period. In 1967, he gets the opportunity to direct his first narrative feature, which is a movie called Countdown. Weird movie, haven't seen it since junior high. Low budget space race movie with Robert Duvall. You ever catch Countdown? I have not. That sounds good, though. It's Space kind of Race fun. with Robert Duvall is right up my alley. Yeah, it's kind of fun. It's mostly, it's it feels very small, which is not really how you want your science fiction film to feel. It feels cheap. I yeah. guess that's, I guess I'm being kind. It feels kind of cheap, but it's certainly worth checking out, especially if you want to be an Altman completist. He gets fired from that film after it wraps. And so he's not involved in any of the post-production. Two years later, he makes a film called That Cold Day in the Park, which is an enormous flop. One year after that, he gets a chance to make MASH, which of course is the film that changes everything and sends him off on his path towards becoming one of the most important American directors of his generation. So it's appropriate that he directs his first feature in 1967, that important year we were talking about, but makes his first quote unquote important film in the first year of the 1970s. I, you know, I've been revisiting a lot of Woody Allen films because my, uh, my brother-in-law really wanted to go through the whole Woody Allen canon. So we're going through all of his films, which comprises, you know, 47 films and, you know, 52 years or something. He had a 37 year run where he made a film every year for 37 years. So Woody Allen gets a lot of that credit for being so prolific. But if you look at Altman's career, he is absolutely one of the most prolific American directors. I mean, he never goes for more than about, from 1967 to about 2003, he doesn't go for more than about two years without making a film, you know, television special or something. I mean, he doesn't get the credit he deserves for being prolific. In 70, he directs MASH. He's off to the races. MASH is in 70. After MASH, it's Brewster McCloud, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Images, The Long Goodbye, Thieves Like Us. California split and then Nashville in 75. Pretty impressive run. I've never seen images, right. but those other, but the rest of the films on that list, I think are all just great. McCabe mm -hmm. and Mrs. Miller, maybe, maybe his masterpiece. I mean, he's got so many entry points because of how well he understands Hollywood history, mm -hmm. how well he can play with genres. In McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the revisionist Western and MASH, the revisionist war. He's able to sort of, I wouldn't say modernize, but maybe contemporize these genres, which is what makes Nashville so great, is that not only is it revisionist musical, because he understands the musical aspects or the, the components of the musical genre, but then he also understands backstage musicals and understands how those two blend together. And I think that's what makes this movie really special as like an artifact. Can't think of another movie that does that as well as Nashville does. That's what, seven movies in five years? You know, God bless him. He was like, all right. Something hit, I'm just going to yeah. make hay while the sun shines. Like, I'm just going to jam through all these movies, which, like I said, all, all pretty great. You know, and, the, you know, yeah. Brewster McCloud is, is, you know, kind of a classic in its own way. McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I guess he'd met Joan Tewksbury on McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and then she writes Thieves Like Us for him. And through these films, he's also building his repertory group, right? Allman was one of those guys who collected actors. And much like his sort of heir apparent, maybe Paul Thomas Anderson, he, he goes and he collects and he builds out this incredible repertory group. And they may not necessarily all be household names, but they're all people you recognize if you're familiar with the cinema of the late 60s and early 70s, right? We're mentioning Woody Allen and we're mentioning Robert Altman. If we if we Like Movies does a podcast for Michael Murphy, mm -hmm. I'm going to be on there. I'm going to force myself onto the set. <laughs> Watching Nashville again, I'm like, how does this guy not oh. have... <laughs> A much bigger name. I agree. I love Michael Murphy so much. I guess Manhattan is the only time he worked with Woody. That can't be right. I'll have to. I'll have to deep dive it. Like, it can't possibly be the only film he made with Woody. But I, I do watching Nashville again. I am struck by how many 
members of the Altman Ensemble then go and work for Woody Allen in the late in the late seventies right. and throughout the eighties. I keep I keep watching Altman repertory members pop up in these Woody Allen movies I'm revisiting. I completely agree. I love Michael Murphy so much. He is so funny in this movie. He's I feel like calling him a sleaze is is reductive. He's very calculated right. in what he's doing. When when the revelation comes that he's not necessarily a disciple of how Philip Walker and or the quote unquote, uh, what's it called? The replacement party. Yeah. This is just a gig. This is just a job, right? He's been asked to go out there and, and recruit and pound the pavement. And he's doing a great job, even though he doesn't necessarily drink the Kool-Aid or whatever, right? I think that's very telling. Right. This movie is so overtly political. It's perfectly willing to entertain the idea that people are acting politically, even if it's not in their best interest or what they ideologically believe. Does that make right. sense? It's a film of contradiction. Yep. I, I read some reviews for, of the film at the time that sort of criticized the film for being too political and being too blunt in the way that it mm. dealt with its politics. I don't know, how do you feel about that? Watching this in an election year, watching a film that takes place in an election year, in an election year, especially with everything that's going on in the world, how, how are you struck by the film's relationship with politics? Because it's right there on the surface. I guess if somebody wants to say it's too blunt, I think because it is so, I don't want to say superficial, but it's right there. Because I think that the politics of the film not only deal with the actual like Washington DC based politics, but it, the politics of the music business, politics of American culture, and I think all three of those mixing together. If you're not ready for it, it'll slap you in the face about the reviews, I was struck by the history of how Nashville came to sort of be written about with the Pauline Kale incident. She wrote about the movie before it was even released. Most people like Vincent Canby at the Times was very anti-Nashville because he was anti-Pauline Kale. Interesting. It was kind of an unprecedented thing. And I, I think that the film wasn't given its due in its time. I mean, it still received Academy Award nominations and New York Film Critics Circle gave it its best film. Um, but in terms of the trade publications, I think that Pauline Kael did it a disservice. And I'm, I'm sure that's probably one of the reasons I would need to do a deeper dive of it. But I'm wondering if that's why we have sort of embargoes on pieces of criticism now, that no one critic can get their piece out first, even first before the movie's released. So I, you know, I, I hear the criticisms. I, I see that, yes, the film is overtly political. But if somebody were to say it's too political, I would probably disagree with that i mean i think the question would be like compared to what like that's that's what the film is right. purporting to be <laughs> like that's the kind of the mission it's a political movie yeah. yeah it's too much music i can't do the music <laughs> that's too yeah, nashville why does it take place in tennessee the whole time? that was too much for me <laughs> does it have to be an old mill wikipedia categorizes this as a satirical musical ensemble comedy drama film they're covering all their bases there i think a lot of people are turned off by the film because they purport to dislike uh, country music, which is maybe one of the reasons that I, even as you know, as a, as a younger person, I probably bristled a little bit at the idea of having to watch it. It probably felt like homework because I'm not a big fan of country music, but watching the film and coming out of the film and writing up my notes and prepping for this podcast, I find myself re-listening re to the soundtrack yeah. a lot, even though I don't, I don't know, I should. I just shouldn't be that staunch or so reductionist. If I like the songs in this movie, then maybe I like country music. I don't know, or maybe I only like certain country music. Like a lot of the songs in this film, particularly Keith Carradine's song, which, which we'll get into because it becomes a little bit of, you know, it's the Oscar winning song. The music is such an important part of this movie. It obviously takes place in the titular 
town and Altman goes right at it. This movie is distinct. And one of the reasons that it is so long at almost three hours is because he's like, we're going to watch the entirety of these performances. We're not going to cut in and out of these things. If someone's going to sing a song, we're going to watch the whole song, whether you like it or not. And I think that's a little bit unprecedented. And I, right. I, I don't know if it was unprecedented at the time, but it does in that regard, it does truly feel like a musical in terms of the fact that the songs are going to be presented in their entirety, you know, and they were yeah. apparently recorded live like they were they were captured as live performances on set. I was really drawn to the idea of country music as the sort of character in the film because I guess in 1975 I can't really think of another genre of music that was so encompassed in itself. The Grand Ole Opry performances, the way that I think about why why it was the genre of choice for the movie is because of the vertical integration of country music in American culture, right? You couldn't just choose rock music because then it becomes a movie about the music industry as a whole rather than this like small pocket community that really works within itself and has its own system, which is why I liked sort of the juxtaposition of watching the politics of this very particular genre in a vacuum. You got to watch country music in a vacuum, but then you also got to see that next to the replacement party and how politics is changing in 1975 with these bumper stickers and buttons and the hokiness of both groups. This is the year after Nixon resigns, right? Isn't, doesn't mm -hmm. Nixon, isn't Watergate 74? Yeah. This movie's being made in 1974, right smack dab in the middle of all that stuff, right? I would like to see Nashville like remade in 2020. If it's remade, you know, like I feel like hip hop as a genre could be the new focal point. Like again, you can't use, you can't have Justin Bieber making an appearance in the new Nashville. It would have to be something different because country and rap at least are the two that I think have their own circle of influence. And quintessentially, quintessentially American, right? Along with maybe jazz, right. maybe jazz music would be the only other genre. These are, these are quintessential American. Yeah. And country and rap are the two American genres that have made at, at one point in time or another have made it to the top of American listening. And in 1975, like country music was as big as it could be. I, I love this idea. I love a, re a, a hip hop remake of Nashville. Where would you set it? Where would it be in Memphis? Where, where, where is the, what is the epicenter of, of hip hop? 1520 Cedric Avenue in the Bronx is where you have your first hip hop concert. Okay. Chicago, Atlanta, one of these, but I think that's what makes Nashville so great is that Nashville is not one of these massive hotspots of just culture in general. Like it really is a, a, an island to itself mm -hmm. where country music brews. I, I think that's what makes also this movie so great. I can't think of another genre of music that is so um, encapsulated in one city. Like we could name five, six, seven cities for hip hop. We could name hundreds of countries for rock and pop music. Yeah. When you think country music, you think Nashville. I was struck by how strong the themes in the film are and in terms of how those themes are reflections of the city, but they also could theoretically be picked up and grafted into different industries. This is a film set in Nashville about politics and about music and about a number of things, but the themes are so resonant and they're all so strong that I feel like you could, you could make an equally effective film if you were to set this in Los Angeles in the film industry or set this in New York in the you know, the financial industry, you know, set this in San Francisco in the tech industry, for example, like it's such a strong film with such strong themes and relationships that uh, it almost provide would provide like a template for a movie about celebrity, greed, self-interest, politics. You could explore that in a completely different industry. They just, just choose to explore that through the country music industry 
And it's effective because if, if you'll pardon me for, for, or for kind of butchering the Roger Ebert quote, if movies are the great quote unquote empathy machine, then they give you the ability to infiltrate worlds that you're not familiar with. And as I, right. as I referenced earlier, this is a world that I'm not familiar with at all. And yet I feel so incredibly close to this world because of how strong Altman's storytelling skills are and the incredible ensemble that he builds out. I mean, this movie has con consensus opinion seems to be at least 24 main characters, probably more than that, but at least 24 main characters and over an hour's worth of live musical performances. This movie lives or dies on the strength of that ensemble, right? And it's yeah. pretty unprecedented. I mean, I really think the only person who has ever maybe topped this kind of mosaic storytelling style is Altman, you know, like if you want to look at short shortcuts perhaps, but I, maybe he had, maybe he's never right. topped it. I mean, this might be his magnum opus. A lot of people have said as much like there, maybe there's never been as strong of a large ensemble mosaic film. To finish one of your thoughts, the template was re recreated by Altman in the early nineties with the player. Sure. Yeah. Looking, looking at Hollywood and you know, that opening sequence, the long take where it's like, you do have this tapestry of characters that you have almost the sort of panoramic perception of which character am I following? Where should I be looking? Where's, where's my attention focused? And you mentioned, you know, the way that Wikipedia describes this movie, it's how the movie is pitched to, um, Tim Robbins. Uh, it's pitched to Tim Robbins where uh, in, in the first sequence, yeah, Griffin Mill, you know, there's the there's the writer pitching him the movie. He's like, well, it's a political movie. He says, well, is it soft political? No, it's it's a political. Pol okay, so we got a political. Pol and just like these, <laughs> the way that Altman is understanding the critiques about his own movies and playing with that. Not to uh, not to interrupt your, your train of thought, but you know who that actor is, who that director is, who, who's doing that pitch? Is that James Cameron? It's uh, Alan Rudolph. Alan Rudolph, and, okay. And Alan Rudolph was the assist, first assistant director of Nashville. Watching the player opening sequence, it is kind of like a who's who of the, you know, Buck Henry is pitching The Graduate Part Two, and, right. and that just, I think, speaks to how great Altman is as a director, that he was able to sort of nail this critique of an entertainment industry, his own entertainment industry that had sort of left him by the wayside during the 80s. Right, that was his big comeback, right, the player? Right, he, he starts with that shot of the Sunset Boulevard mural that's the opening shot of the player mm -hmm. so you just know right off the bat it's going to be a, a nice scathing critique of of the industry it's interesting that you that you say it that that you um, frame it that way just to bring it back to nashville this film was apparently kind of reviled in the city of nashville after its release people thought it was making fun of the city people thought that the songs you know most of which were written for the film many of which were written by the actors in the film who were singing them a lot of residents of nashville thought that the songs were meant to make fun of that style and that the the movie was criticizing the kind of good old boy mentality i think it's kind of significant as well that there are so few black characters in the film considering that it's set in the south and i have to imagine that's intentional that this is about a specific part of the Nashville community who is so mm -hmm. drawn to this type of music and spend time at the Grand Ole Opry. But it also right. could be a reflection of American cinema of the night of the mid 1970s as well, in terms of just not casting black actors in, in the main roles. I'm willing to give Altman the benefit of the doubt that it's 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 pretty intentional that there are not many yeah. black characters in the ensemble. The way that the black characters get treated in the ensemble is also telling that it was probably on purpose. Can't remember the character's name, but the one who's friends with the terrible singer who does the strip tease towards the end. Yes. There's too many main characters. I can't remember all their <laughs> names, but he, you know, he makes a comment that, that one of the black singers is too white that, you know, he's not black enough and he gets thrown out of the bar early in the movie. But then later in the movie, we see this guy and he is the help at 
the party with Elliot Gould. Right. I mean, he's setting the table. And, and so I think there's like a, there's an intentionality there that it, you know, was it worth it to have just a few black characters? You have the whole, the, the black choir. So in terms of quantity, you've got a lot, but in terms of the quality of the roles, I, I would hope that it was intentional the way that he was playing these the sort of triptych black character of the the star, this friend of the of the bad singer, and then the, and then the choir itself. The black choir, of course, headed up by Lily Tomlin, yes. white actress. In the the opening scene, really the the, the recording uh, studio scene where you first walk in and see this this gospel choir, Lily Tomlin as the one white face in there really 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 stands out. And I have to imagine yes. that that's an intentional choice. Well, just since we're starting to talk about it, twenty four main characters in this movie, pretty unprecedented. Let me just run them down real quick just to give you an idea about how fun, how strong, how interesting and unique all these character names are. You got Haven Hamilton, Opal, Barbara Jean, Lady Pearl, Private First Class, Glenn Kelly, Bill, Mary, and Tom, Martha, aka L.A. Joan, Mr. Green, Wade Cooley, the uh, character that you that you mentioned earlier, and uh, and his friend Suleen, well, Winifred, aka Albuquerque, Star, Kenny Frazier, Linnea Reese, Del Reese, John Triplett, Connie White, Tricycle Man, Barnett, Norman, Tommy Brown, and Bud Hamilton. And and each one played by a fantastic actor. The ensemble is incredible. And the way the film kind of gives them all equal opportunities to make an impression is pretty darn unprecedented. When I started thinking about this, I started realizing this is really an Altman thing. This is something that he's carried through his entire career is that there's decency in his characters. I don't know if he is interested in a quote-unquote good guy. I don't know if he's interested yeah. in a quote good protagonist. I don't think he's interested in, he's not interested in heroism. While there are decent people and decent acts taking place throughout his films, the more I think about it, the more I realize that Donald Sutherland and, um, and Elliot Gould in MASH, you know, they're funny and they're quippy and they're smart. I don't know if they're good guys. You know, they're good surgeons. I don't know yeah. if that necessarily means they're yeah. good guys. Griffin Mill, of course, is not a good guy. I think Altman is is obviously interested in the complexities of humanity, and he is interested in occasional decency, but he's not interested in good characters. The more I think about it, he is just one of the most cynical filmmakers to come out of the American New Wave, right? And I mean that as a compliment. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. In terms of Nashville in particular, this word is such a buzzword, so I want to unpack it. <laughs> Everything in it felt organic. Mm -hmm. I would almost describe it as like organically linear. With the player and with MASH and with McCabe and Mrs. Miller, you can feel that there's a hand pushing the story along. Yes. Uh, you can feel the plot points hit. In Nashville, it's where am I going? What am I watching? Where are we going next? We're bouncing back and forth between bars with really no rhyme or reason to it. Watching all these acts that sort of culminates in a big thing. Um, but it's not really anything you see coming. It's not something that's planned from the beginning. And I think that sort of organic nature to the film also plays out with its characters, that all the characters are organic. You get their good sides and their bad sides. For the most part, we're seeing a lot of bad sides. I, I think that the, the true villain of the movie is Haven Hamilton. Okay, He's one of my favorites to watch, but just somebody who's so rigid. And I think that that's kind of where I would draw. If somebody were to ask me how to find the villains in Nashville it would be like, those who are rigid are the villain and those who are unwilling to change and things like that significant that he wears that white nudie suit throughout you know he, he I if he's gotta the villain. get myself one Matt, I <laughs> gotta so get myself iconic. one Henry Gibson is so wonderful in this movie I, I think I would agree with you I mean he's pretty, he's pretty much the first character we're introduced to and he's the one who says the most famous line in the film at the end. But yeah, he's wearing this unbelievably iconic, it's called a nudie suit. Apparently, it's basically just this white leather suit. He's wearing it for the entire film. He doesn't wear anything else. Apparently, that role was written for, or at least first offered to Robert Duvall. 
who apparently wanted wanted a little too much. And so Henry Gibson was the second choice. But this is I think this is certainly maybe along with the Burbs got to be the character he's going to be most remem- remembered for, right? I mean, just his work with Altman in, in general. That's what makes this movie great too. I think about Robert Duvall and of course hindsight buys, but I think about if Robert Duvall was in it, I, it might have overshadowed. Robert Duvall right. is huge at this time. Yeah. Done the Godfathers and you know all this kind of stuff. So Henry Gibson is great because it sort of evens out that playing field of there's not a whole lot of stars in the movie. There's not like one big superstar even in the 24. Jeff Goldblum goes on to be a great star. Jeff Goldblum doesn't have a single line in the entire film as the tricycle man, right? He's a, but he's like, he's the connective tissue. He's leading us. You follow his bike, all these different locations. I mean, absolutely. What a brilliant narrative device. I think Robert Duvall would have, I'm not going to say ruined it. I think that's a, that's a tough word, but it would have been harder to be invested in other stories if it's Robert Duvall, because you see Robert Duvall and you think, well, I've got to follow his because he's probably getting paid more to be on set. And therefore he's got the bigger storyline XYZ and, yeah, you know, Haven Hamilton is, if I had to rank main characters based on screen time, sure, he's probably one of the more main characters. Certainly. But I think that Henry Gibson helps balance that out, that it is like, it's not a no-name, but definitely somebody who can even out the playing field of superstardom. I completely agree. I think it's so significant that Altman is catching all of these people, many of whom are very familiar faces, many of whom, like Jeff Goldblum, went on to become big stars. But they're all sort of at the right point in their career. I was reading uh, earlier today that Karen Black, who plays um, the character Connie White was the biggest star at the time because I think she's coming off of five uh, five easy pieces which she got Oscar yeah. nominated for. So Karen Black is a person I'm not all that familiar with. And, and in 1975, she was far and away the biggest star. So it's appropriate that she's playing this character who's kind of like the rival of Barbara Jean, who's this tragic character who everybody in the in Nashville loves so much, but just can't quite get it together for a number of reasons. And of course, you know, becomes this symbol at the end when she gets assassinated. Those two characters, Connie White and Barbara Jean, apparently, according to Joan Tewksbury, are, are modeled after uh, Dolly Parton and Loretta Lynn. And if you just want to go down the list, I mean, Geraldine Chapel, um, who was apparently the first person cast in the film is also sort of like the Joan Tewksbury uh, surrogate. She's a foreigner. She's an outsider. She's come to the city to ostensibly interview for the BBC. Apparently, Joan Tewksbury kind of wrote her as a little bit of a surrogate for herself because she was an outsider coming to Nashville, interviewing people, getting into adventures. Do you think Geraldine Chaplin's character of Opal really is from the BBC? That's, that's kind of one of the fun things about this movie is that she may very well be a fraud, or am I just being cynical now? At first reading, I think it's legitimate. But the more I think about it, the more I think about just that this movie is also about fandom and how mm-hmm. fans react to their favorite stars, I would be willing to hear an argument and would be willing to side with it that she's not real, but she's kind of, or at least not a legitimate reporter for the BBC. I just, I have that scene in my head where she's walking through the school buses. Like the elephant graveyard scene. Yeah, and then then she's walking through the junkyard and we actually see Jeff Goldblum shaving in one of them. Yeah, which exactly. is fantastic. It's just a wonderful, a wonderful little detail. And I think it's so adorable. I guess that I'm supposed to be led to believe that she is legitimate. I'm also up for a fan theory that says that she's not. I just know it's kind of it's a it's a little bit of a of a fan theory, of a conspiracy theory that maybe she's a total fraud because she doesn't have any like credentials yeah. or anything. You never see her calling to her editor or her producer at the BBC. I just think it's kind of fun to think that like maybe she's just a fraudulent groupie, perhaps. On this viewing, I noticed she's got a cute little um, musical note pin on her little floppy hat, which I thought was was adorable in sort of in the category of groupies. Shelley Duvall is is so wonderful in this movie. She has one of the all-time unique screen presences. She's obviously an Altman repertory player. It's so devastating her 
relationship with Keenan Wynn, who plays her uncle. Mm-hmm. And throughout the entire film is just trying to get her to visit her dying aunt. And all she wants to do is is fraternize with musicians. Like there's so many little dramas in this movie that I find to be so incredibly yeah. devastating. But man, she, I mean, no wonder guys like Altman responded to her and gravitated towards her because she just doesn't look anything like anybody. <laughs> she's just she's so incredibly unique. I can't think of another person who have that sort of screen grab when they're on screen. It's just, they have True. an aura. It's not necessarily attraction. It's not necessarily like great act. It's just like they have presence to themselves that's really unexplainable. I think Michael Murphy, to go back to Michael, Michael Murphy's a great actor, but he, he just, mm-hmm. he, he's a normal dude. But right. Shelley Duvall has this weird timelessness at the same time yep. of being also having like very her style but also her look is very contemporary it, I sure. can't explain I mean I'm gonna ramble just trying to find words it's a more I mean it's it's it you know like sometimes you just can't put a you, you just yep. can't describe it and whatever it is she, she's got it I'll, you know but I don't want to just leave it to her look I mean she obviously was a very accomplished actress as well I think she was Oscar nominated for three women yep. a couple years later so and then of course Altman Kasser in Popeye uh, which might be her, her most iconic role Shelley Duvall her and Jeff Goldblum, great cast members here, make an appearance in Annie Hall two years later. Yes. They're kind of playing the same types of people. Like they're playing Californians, but they're playing like that. Uh-huh. What happens to the flower children of the 60s in the 70s? And and it's these <laughs> these movies feel like continuations of that. Like, well, here's where they are now. Right. Shelley Duvall's character in Annie Hall is great talking about the, the, Maharishi. the Maharishi and everything. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting that like Altman and Alan are sort of interested in these ideas of the the cultural divides that were happening in the 70s. I love this theory that Nashville and Annie Hall are part of a shared universe. I, I love the idea that Shelley Vall's character goes on to be Woody's this is Maharishi what, loving date. This is great. That's what, and yeah, Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> he, he doesn't get to say a single word in this movie. And then the one thing he gets to say in Annie Hall is, uh, I forgot my mantra. Watching the film this time, I was trying to figure out, is the film positioning Scott Glenn because he is the only military presence in the film, and this is 1975, so this is the year that Vietnam War ends. Mm-hmm. Is the film trying to position him to potentially misdirect you that he, and especially because he's so obsessed with Barbara Jean, it's trying to misdirect you that he is the threat, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Keith Carradine, you know, says, how many people did you shoot this week? Yeah. The way he carries himself as a character is like this good old country Southern boy, went off to war, coming back home to mama, you know, just in that final sequence, even I've got him in my mind. I've got Jeff Goldblum in my mind because he rides his tricycle through the crowd. Uh-huh. The, I rewatched it with my brother who had never seen it before. And even he, during that final sequence, he doesn't know the assassination is going to happen. But he was like, this feels weird. Like, what is, what's wrong with the scene? Scott Glenn's character is supposed to be, not throughout the whole movie, but definitely like in these more tense moments. If you're judging a book by its cover, this person who's coming home from war, this silent figure who's on, who's doing magic tricks with his tricycle, sort of the outcast of the outcast. These two are the ones to watch. And in reality, it's almost the most normal character in the movie? I don't even know the name of the actor, to be perfectly honest. I mean, his character's name is Kenny, but Altman obviously very explicitly casts an, an extraordinarily nondescript yeah. actor, although kind of fits the profile, right? When you start thinking about Oswald and Mark David Chapman, who shot Lennon, like he, he fits the profile. And I think that's kind of in, intentional in its, own, in its own way, although Altman and, and Joan Tewksbury do a really good job of misdirecting you. Scott Glenn wakes up in Barbara Jean's hotel or uh, hospital room at one point. Yeah. This is the first time I watched it when I caught a very instructive shot during the riverboat performance mm-hmm. where Kenny and uh, Glenn Kelly, yeah, there's a very intentional thing where they're, where Altman frames them together. And I had never noticed that before, how he's clearly saying, like, keep your eye on these two. Yeah. Of course, Kenny's the one who eventually performs the assassination and Kelly's the one who has to disarm him. I, I think, too, there's the shot 
of Glenn Kelly coming into Barbara Jean's hospital room and the way that yes. she's lit in this white dress, flowing hair, the light above her bed is completely illuminating herself. Like she looks like the Virgin Mary. Like she looks like some sort of Renaissance painting of the Virgin Mary that this idol worship from the private, like you're led to believe like this guy is going to murder her or do something in this hotel or in this hospital room. I'd like to rewatch the movie again now to see how often they are framed together in those like big yeah. group scenes. The aforementioned Barbara Jean is played by Ronnie Blakely, who was the other actress who was Oscar nominated for this film. This was her first film. This was her film debut. She was apparently just writing some songs for the movie living in Nashville, and she was cast very, very late in the game. So it's interesting, such a pivotal character that the entire narrative right. completely revolves around was cast very late in the game. What's funny in my research, I read that even though Altman insisted to the cast that everybody loves Barbara Jean so much and the entire thing hinges on your love for Barbara Jean, apparently nobody on this film loved Ronnie Blakely. She was not particularly liked at all. I don't know if it was because of her inexperience. She did go on to get Oscar nominated. Yeah. Her breakdown on the aforementioned riverboat is just one of the all-time cringiest scenes ever, right? Like yeah. it's just I had to like leave the room and pace around. It's very difficult to watch. You know, I was laughing. I'm sure that there's a lot of psychology behind like why I'm laughing at this scene right now. That was my form of leaving the room. I just like I have to like break from the moment and like <laughs> remove myself from it and be like, oh this is funny. This is a movie. I'm watching yeah this is in real life. <laughs> That's one of the, we talked about all these unbroken songs that get sung. She's performing longer than any of the others have performed. You almost get into this lull. This is the first time you've seen Barbara Jean perform at length. I think that that's on purpose because then it does sort of catch you off guard when she starts telling the story. Like, is this part of the act? Is this part of the song? And then the second one comes and then the third one comes and you start watching her husband. That's a tough scene to watch, but it's, I think, probably my favorite of the movie. I mean, you've, you've teed me up to go into what's probably my favorite scene in the film, which, and this is not a provocative idea because it might be the most famous scene in the movie. And this will lead us into talking about another character I think is pretty significant. And that's Keith Carradine's character, Tom, who performs I'm Easy. It's the song from the film that won an Oscar. It's obviously probably the most memorable song for the film. It's my favorite scene in the film. It's He's just so fascinating. And Keith Carradine is so incredible. And he's such a despicable character. And I was, I was just watching an interview with Keith Carradine from relatively recently, probably the last 10 years where he's talking about it. And he's just talking about how much he hated this character when he played him. And how he would go to Altman all the time and be like, I don't I don't know if this is right. I don't know what I'm doing. I hate this guy so much. I'm playing such a despicable person. I can't right. identify. And Altman's, no, you're great. You're great. You should hate this guy. Mm -hmm. This guy hates himself. This is this is a narcissist who hates himself and he's trying to fill that void with women and drugs and narcissism and, you know, a solo career or whatever. Like, this is a sad guy who really hates himself. Right. And he's trying to figure out a way to fill that that deep emptiness inside him. And the fact that Carradine hated him so much while he was playing him was exactly right. Absolutely. That being said, when you watch him perform I'm easy. I just found myself being like, yeah, I'll go back to his hotel room with him. You know, yeah. like this guy is so incredible on stage. And you watch that scene and you realize all the women, Lily Thomas character, Geraldine Chaplin, Shelley Duvall rather, and Reigns who plays Mary, they all think he's singing it to them. Yeah. And then what an incredible dynamic to be able to set that up so that all of these women think that the song is for them. Absolutely. Just seducing everybody. And he's, he's seducing us and that push in on Lily Tomlin's face, which is probably what got her the Oscar nomination. It's just a transcendence 
scene. And I, I listen to that song all the time. And Keith Carradine's just not really an actor that I that I have that much of an opinion about. Pretty phenomenal in this movie. I'm actually kind of surprised that he wasn't Oscar nominated for it. In the in the category of sort of cringe scenes, another good one to point out is the character of Suling Gay, played by Gwen Wells, when yep. she has to do her striptease, like another truly tragic character and arc. Yeah. Somebody who has zero self-awareness yep. about her abilities and her station and how exploited she can be by this world. She's the one who gets truly exploited and crushed by this environment. She becomes that sort of stereotypical story you hear about people who move to Hollywood or Nashville or New York because they either don't have the talent like Celine or it's just like luck has bid them a bad hand. But that's what I found interesting was you, you've got Michael Murphy in that room with Celine as she's doing that. You know, so it's like she's still a part of that world. She's She hasn't been like fully removed. She has one thing to offer right. that they're interested in. It's not her voice, unfortunately for her. Yeah. She does have something that they want and she has something that she can use, but it's not, she doesn't want to use it and it's not her preferred station, right? 1964 with Sidney Lumet's The Pawnbroker, where you sort of have one of the first major on-screen nudities. You've got Rod Steiger looking at this prostitute who has exposed herself to him in exchange for sort of paying off her debt to his pawn shop. He then is reminded of his wife in the Holocaust, him seeing her bare-chested, who reminds him of seeing his wife in a concentration camp. And you see both women's breasts on screen when they were asked about it, because this is obviously before the rating system. But when they asked, you know, who the, the head of the board who passed this movie, why did you let this pass? And they said, if you're getting turned on by this sequence, this, this movie really wasn't going to save you. And I, I feel that way about this sequence where it's like you watch it and it's like, this is a, it's a striptease. It's nudity. It's like, it's set up in the context of what, like all these men in the room are cheering. Even the piano player at one point right. in time, like plays a little ditty when the, when her underwear finally comes up and you're watching it and you're kind of like, I don't know what to do. Do like that's the thing. Like I want to like like grab like rush her away from this room. Like you you just it's it's horrific to watch. That that's got to be the cringiest scene for me. Almond's one of those filmmakers who just is not gonna shy away from that kind of stuff, which I think makes him pretty unique in that regard. Just we're talking about all these all these cast members. The film holds the record for the most Golden Globe nominations of all time. A record that it's it still stands. Uh, Eleven nominations. Mm-hmm. Four of those nominations were in the supporting actress category. Four out of the five supporting actress nominees that year came from Nashville. It was also nominated for five Oscars. The only win was for Keith Carradine's I'm Easy. Just to kind of wrap things up here, opening title sequence, which I think is really, really fun. It's kind of like this um, riff on like the low budget KTEL record television commercial thing. It's super fun. You can find it on YouTube. Designed by a guy named Dan Perry, who also did The Exorcist, Taxi Driver, Star Wars, and Raging Bull. Not exactly a lightweight. In a 1995 academic article published in American Quarterly, Paul Lauder, a professor of American Studies at Trinity College, compared the film to, quote, a post-structuralist theoretical text. It invites, indeed, valorizes contradiction and seems to seems designed to resist closure. Interpretations of the film have been wildly divergent and evaluations contradictory. This is the kind of like film studies nerd stuff that you and I get super duper into. Do you find the film to be contradictory? Do you think the film contradicts itself or is it just intentionally wanting to be so open to interpretation so as to be almost kind of oblique in its own way? Yeah, I mean, to go back to the word I mentioned earlier, like I think that it being organic and therefore makes it more lifelike makes it contradictory. Um, and I think it's the film has a certain malleability to it that allows for whoever's watching it to be molding it in whatever way they're wanting you to 
could be focusing on the actual political stuff or the music stuff or, or whatever. There's a malleability to it that almost requires for different audience members to be contradicting in how they're receiving the movie. But yeah, I, I, th I would agree. I think the movie is pretty contradicting. Not to be contradicting for the sake of contradiction, but I think because that's the way that life is. Humanity is. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that sounds like such a, a cheap outing, but it, yeah, I, I think that this is one of those movies that just sort of gets real life correct. I was thinking like, it'd be great to watch this movie and read Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death at the same time. Like it sort of understands that idea of where politics were going at the time and where music as a force for celebrities was going at the time. You know, you mentioned Michael Murphy where it's like, you know, he's fighting for this replacement party strictly out of monetary gains or out of resume based gain, you know. So yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I, I'm not sure I'd have to dig a little deeper and think more about if it's post-structuralist or not. All of these characters have come to Nashville and a lot of them have come there because they've got to gig, you know, like yep. it's a recording gig, it's a live gig, and Michael Murphy's got a, a campaign gig. If you'll indulge me one more quick quote, yep. Ray Sawhill of Salon suggests that the film is preoccupied with, quote, a populist culture driving itself mad with celebrity, unquote, and presents Nashville as a, quote, provincial New York of Hollywood as one of the places where the culture manifests its image of itself, unquote. Uh, he cites the various recording and communication devices as evidence of this, quote, wires, phones, intercoms, cameras, mics, speakers seem to be everywhere. So does the machinery of publicity and fame. We watch the city recording itself, playing itself back to itself and marketing that image to itself. We eavesdrop on the culture's conversation with itself. We're watching people decide how they want to see themselves and how they want to sell themselves, unquote. I think that's a really savvy way of looking at it. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that rare is it that a city so encapsulates a genre of of art or like a mode of artistry um, that you really this movie really does show you like the vertical integration of country music and I think that maybe that's the contradiction I think that the contradiction is also just like the looking in the mirror and seeing the flipped image but I, I think that's apt do you think that this is the second best film named after a city Ooh. and by second best I'm just automatically slotting Casablanca right into that top spot <laughs> see we're going to disagree about that because I don't like okay. Casablanca I know that I've got I've got to watch my mentions on Twitter because I know that's a hot take <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to put you on the spot. I just I just happen to be thinking about films named after cities and this one's got to be right up there, right? I keep doing this and the listeners are going to hate me, but Michael Murphy in Manhattan, I've got to give yeah. it the top spot. I'll buy that. I mean, could you say Scorsese's New York, New York? See, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. When I was going through and putting together a quick little list here, I was trying to discipline myself into not including stuff like titles that included the name of a city. In other words, not Beverly Hills Cop. for Yeah, or Tyrone with Love. and LA Confidential, Tyrone yeah. with Love. Yeah, so just the ones that I grabbed. I think New York, New York counts because that's how people refer to the city sometimes yep. because it is New York, New York State. I got Detroit, Annapolis, Atlantic City, Fargo, Casablanca, Elizabethtown, Philadelphia, Chicago, Cedar Rapids, Kansas City, Manhattan, Selma, and Key Largo. It's a good list. I think it might be kind of fun someday to do like a top 10 yeah. movies named after cities list. Uh, yeah, I think, I think of that list, I would probably say Manhattan and Nashville, one and two. I think you alluded to this earlier, but your favorite scene in the movie is? Barbara Jean having a meltdown on stage. I think it's cringy because it speaks, to, it's it's part of that like showing you the, the decrepit nature of celebrity excess that she really shouldn't have been performing that quickly after leaving the hospital. But right. you know, her, her husband, who is her manager, is pushing her to go out there and perform and everybody's wanting her to get back out on the stage. Even when she does get dragged off, the audience boos her. You know, they boo yeah. that she's 
leaving. I think if I were to like show a sequence from that movie that is a much is a distilled scene that shows you the whole movie in and of itself, I would watch that scene and say like, if you like this scene and what this scene is sort of speaking to, then you would like Nashville as a whole because it's in two hours and forty minutes is that's a long haul. But it's one of those movies you do have to kind of watch in its entirety because there's so many moving pieces. But yeah, I, favorite scene for sure is the meltdown. I'm gonna go with uh, Keith Carradine's performance of I'm Easy in Lady Pearl's nightclub. It's really when just all of Altman's powers kind of coalesce. And the fact that the film and uh, Carradine by extension have basically spent an hour and a half giving you every reason to hate this person. And yet you still find yourself seduced by this pretty terrible vacuous person in this moment. I just think it's it's kind of a, a transcendent moment. Yeah. This film is number 59 on the AFI Top 100 list. Uh, as I mentioned before, it wasn't on the original 1998 version of the list. Released on June 11th, 1975. 160 minute runtime. Currently has a Rotten Tomatoes rating of 92%. $2.2 million budget. Worldwide box office $10 million. I'm getting the impression we both love this movie. Something tells me we both believe it should definitely be on a list like this. Um, yeah. You feel free to disagree with that. But uh, in addition, do you think it should be higher or lower? Or is it right in the right spot? It's tough with these because what's the difference between 58, 59, and 60? Um, <laughs> in terms of like outside of the top five or outside of like the last five in, I would put this movie in, in, in terms of what the AFI is looking at, um, in terms of how it affects and speaks to American culture and what it did for American movies and just a general entertainment factor. Yeah, I've got to put this movie like right in the middle, 45 to 60. Maybe 59 might be too high for me, maybe closer to 50, but I, I think they've got it fairly correct. I 100% agree. It's a reviewer, a piece of work. I have it written here in my notes that it's kind of like the intimate made epic. It's a, it's an Absolutely. intimate film with intimate moments with these characters, and yet it is a sprawling epic. And in his own way, Paul Thomas Anderson made films like Boogie Nights and Magnolia, which I think are obviously descendants of a film like this. And I would also put in that category of being the intimate made epic. The intimate made epic. Wow. I'm going to take that from you. <laughs> Please do. I probably should have Googled it first to see if it, if I should attribute that to anybody. I'll cite you and then you can cite whoever. Because I'm just, I'm thinking like all PTA's movies now. I'm like, yeah, that's, I think there will be blood. It's not like an ensemble cast, but it's definitely the intimate made epic. Wow. That's okay. This is why you're the host and I'm the guest. I'm glad I saved that one till the end. I, I'm glad it made an impression on you. I'm, I'm pretty proud of that one. Um, I just want to leave us here with a little bit of IMDb trivia, which is probably apocryphal, but apparently faced with an impending rain rainstorm, which threatened to ruin filming of Barbara Jean's assassination with no recourse as the production's budget had run dry. Robert Altman reportedly screamed at the sky ordering the rain to stop. The rain did indeed stop and the filming of the scene was completed. Even Robert Altman can direct the weather. I buy it. Ben, is there anything you'd like to plug? Anybody you'd like to shout? Anything or anybody you'd like to shout out? Anything going on in your life? Anything you'd like to direct us to? Any online work? Go to Criterion Channel. Go to, there that, go. That's what I want to plug. Art House Cinema and, and, and be donating to uh, racial reconciliation organizations and with whatever money you have left, donate to repertory cinemas across the nation. I appreciate that, Ben. And I appreciate you being here and I hope you'll join us again very very soon your insight means a lot to me i just so so much fun getting to talk to you about this stuff man let's do it again soon absolutely thank you so much for listening if you haven't figured it out yet we like movies but we also like podcasting i want to continue doing it if you liked what you've heard here please consider rating reviewing and subscribing to this podcast on your preferred podcast platform follow us on the socials at wlm podcast drop us a line the old-fashioned way wlm podcast at gmail.com if you're interested in helping us keep the lights on at 
at WLMHQ. Visit welikemovies.com and click on the donation link at the top. You can also find archives, listicles, rankings, articles, essays, and assorted WLM ephemera. Tell your friends and help us keep the conversation going. For Ben Goff and Oscar Dahl, I'm Matt Knudsen, encouraging everyone to keep fighting the good fight, but please take care of yourself out there while you're doing so. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. It's not my way to love you just when no one's looking. It's not my way to take your hand if I'm not sure. It's not my way to let you see what's going on inside of me. When it's love you won't be needing, you're not free. Please stop pulling at my sleeve if you're just playing. If you won't take the things you make me want to give. Never cared too much for games And this one's driving me insane You're not half as free to wander as you claim But I'm easy Yeah, I'm easy Give the word I'll play your game As though that's how it ought to be Cause I'm easy Don't lead me on if there's nowhere for you to take me If loving you would have to be a sometime thing I can't put bars on my insides My love is something I can't hide It still hurts when I recall the times I've tried But I'm easy Yeah, I'm easy Take my hand and pull me down I won't put up any fight Because I'm easy